We all make decisions daily. And many of the decisions that we make are inconsequential, such as the color clothing that you chose to wear to church tonight or to watch church online tonight for fear of some serious thunderstorms that could come in. I haven't decided whether to preach short or long to miss the thunderstorms. So pray for me that the Lord will give me wisdom to make a good decision, a wise decision. But then, for example, what you chose to eat today may be considered a minor decision today, but it could become a weighty decision later. <laughs> Several years ago we were talking about this and Brother David Turner shared with me that bad decisions make good stories. The best missions trips I've ever taken students on, the best stories were the things that went wrong. And speaking of missions, we're excited. Brother Jacob Barker is leaving next Tuesday, I believe, going to Uruguay for a year. And we're going to support him in prayer financially. And Sunday we'll pray over him at the end of service. Albert Camus said that life is the sum of all your choices. Your decisions truly do determine your destiny. And I'm talking about the values that you embrace, the friends you choose, the habits you form, the vocation you select, the spouse you marry if you choose to marry, the proximity you have to the church and your involvement in the church. And in the Old Testament, the church was in the middle. Everybody camped around the church. The church was not at the periphery. It was in the center of their lives. And that decision that people make is, is destiny altering. Amen. All of these decisions and many more can have serious consequences in your life. So in effect, you can choose to do just about whatever you want to do in life. But you don't get to choose the consequences of your decisions. You make the decision and it has a consequence as a result of that, both good and bad. It's not always negative. Consequences are predetermined based on your choices and the laws of sowing and reaping that God established in his word. I believe that the laws of sowing and reaping supersede God's forgiveness and mercy and grace. There's some choices that people make that God forgives them of the act and the sin, but there are consequences they live through. And not in my notes tonight, but I've said in times past that while you're reaping a bad harvest from bad seeds sown, know that the principle also works if you start today or yesterday or tomorrow and sow good seeds, the law works and it will pay off in your life if you sow seeds of godliness in your life. And there's the law of unintended consequences, some things you didn't think about that happened that you didn't foresee. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, if you sow a thought, you reap an action. If you sow an act, you reap a habit. If you sow a habit, you reap a character. If you sow a character, you reap a destiny. It's so important, and I remember typing those words and thinking about that and how serious, you know, the decisions people make can be. My brother T.L. Kraft that I mention often, a pastoral mentor to me that I served for, you know, almost 10 years, he said, you know, eternity's doors swing on little hinges. And those little hinges are the decisions people make. Think about the decision to walk out of a seat and repent. 
or sit where a person is and turn away from their sins and toward God. That seems like such a small hinge in life, but it has eternal consequences. So if, if you're at a place in your life of making critical decisions, it's important to contemplate that decision, not be impulsive, impetuous, don't leap at that decision. If it's a major decision, then you need to prayerfully consider it and make a good decision. Bad decisions can have devastating consequences. And good decisions can bring the blessings of God in your life. So I'm going to try to share practical principles. There are ten of them. My goal is to share five tonight and five next Wednesday night, Lord willing. And for everyone who abhors alliteration, you know, using the same letter for every point, it just worked out that way when I designed this series. So I'm going to talk about these ten things, principles, purpose, priorities, prayer, peace of God, precedent, perspective of counsel, people, patience, and process. I don't profess that this is the final word or this is the ten, like this is not the ten commandments, okay? It's my best effort to try to, to think through making wise decisions and maybe you could distill this down, maybe you could expand it, and that would give you all something to do in personal study and really, I'm, I'm encouraging that. So, the first thing is that principles must underlie good decisions. We make decisions based on biblical principles. A principle is a fundamental truth or a proposition that serves as the foundation for a system of belief or behavior or a chain or a line of reasoning. Biblical Principles are the foundation upon which our lives should be built. You've heard me say this many times. We believe in the practice of the gifts of the Spirit. But the Apostle Peter said we have a more sure word of prophecy. Holy men of God wrote as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Jesus said not one tiny punctuation mark, a jot or a tittle will pass. Jesus said heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall never pass away. So when you build your life on the principle of God's word, it is a sure foundation and you'll never have to be ashamed, never have to flee, the Bible says. So principles are perfect, people are not. And we should strive to live a principled life. And when we fall short, we should repent and reach back for that principle. I noticed numbers of years ago, I should have had this in my notes, but I didn't. That the Bible doesn't really tell us what to do when you fall ten steps below his ideal. He gives us the principle. He gives us one step back. It's called repentance. And after you're two, three, four, five steps below that ideal, God doesn't really deal with all of those steps that would be below that. At Atlanta West, we have this saying that we say pretty often, and every year in our employees and volunteer meeting, if you mess up, Fess up and make it right. That's all you can do. And resist the temptation, though, to try to conform the principle to your behavior. To try to make God's word match your mistake. We have to confess, not like Adam and Eve, who run and hide and cover and blame, blame shift, but accept responsibility, make it right, and then reach for the principle that God established. And this idea of principles is the idea of the cornerstone in the Bible. 
So this is a principle, but this is a basis for making decisions. The Bible teaches that Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. Isaiah 28, 16. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste in the King James, but it means shall not be forced to flee. Once you make that your foundation, like the wise man that built his house upon the rock, dig deep, Luke 6, I talked about Sunday, that you'll never have anything that will happen in your life that will force you to abandon the position of being built on that foundation. Isaiah prophesied about that. Psalm 118, 22 and 23, the stone which the builders refused is become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Matthew 21, Jesus quoted that psalm identifying himself as that cornerstone. In Acts chapter 4, you know, verse 11, Acts 10, uh, 4, 10, 4, 11, he's become the head of the corner. Paul in Ephesians 2 spoke about our relationship with God. Gentiles were no more strangers and foreigners, but were fellow citizens of the kingdom of God. We're like a building fitly framed together that grows up to the Lord. And he said we're built on, Ephesians 2.20, the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So when you see an example in the Bible, you want to understand what the thing that is being illustrated is like. If Jesus says, that the, the kingdom of God is like a gate or a door. Whatever that is, we want to understand what that does so we can then make the proper application. So a cornerstone, most of you have already figured that out long before tonight, but the cornerstone, foundation stone, is the first stone. If you are constructing a solid stone structure, the cornerstone is at the corner. It's the first stone that is laid. Now some cornerstones are more ceremonially ceremonial and they'll put something inside that stone you know that says something about that building but from a building perspective from the Bible it was the most important stone that was ever laid because every stone laid after that stone was referenced back to it every stone down the first row was had to be lined up to the cornerstone and as as rows were added, as you know, stones or bricks were laid, they all referenced back to that point of origin, that cornerstone. And in our lives, this cornerstone principle means that everything we do should be referenced back to the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ. And if it doesn't align to Him, when I say Him, I'm speaking of Jesus as revealed in His Word, if it doesn't align to him, the practice of our culture is to move the point of origin. I've already said this in another way. They try to move the cornerstone to align truth to their behavior instead of aligning their behavior to the cornerstone. So this principle is important and I believe it is the fundamental principle for making wise decisions. You line up to the cornerstone. So you think through and you look back. If you hear an idea, whether it is in school, 
or in college, if it's at work or anywhere in culture, you should always hold it up to the Bible. And you can only do that if you know your Bible. Thank God for all the Bible readers at Atlanta West. I love people who already are ahead of me and are thinking this through because you've read it and studied it on your own. That's not uncomfortable to me. I think it's awesome that we have spiritual, godly, Bible study, mature people in our church that could teach this same lesson. But you hold that, you hold the Bible, you hold that principle up to your Bible, that, that decision, and see how does, how does it compare, and I'm going to do this, to the cornerstone. And if it doesn't line up, then you change the decision. What about your worldview, your belief about the nature of human beings made in the image of God, male and female? I've never had that in my notes till this year. But we see what's going on in our culture and the gradual erosion of our moral values, biblical principles. So we could talk about holiness standards, which we believe external holiness. But we've got people dealing with pretty fundamental issues about the nature of human beings. Your friends, your activities, your dress and behavior. Far too many people make life-altering decisions without regard to the cornerstone. No wonder in our world so many lives are like buildings that are leaning over and about to collapse because they have not been framed by that cornerstone. Thank God that we know where Jesus Christ belongs in our life. He isn't second or third. Just imagine in a building if you get this idea, what if you move the cornerstone down one stone or up one level? And now your point of reference is something else. It doesn't work there. That's why the Bible says in a couple of passages I referred to that he was the stone that the builders rejected or they set aside. Set it not, the King James says. So in the Jewish religion in Jesus' day, they're building their religion and Jesus comes along and they try to see where they can fit him in. Some say you're a teacher, from, come from God. You're a rabbi. The reason he was accused of blasphemy is he being a man made himself God. He identified himself as God in flesh as the cornerstone. And when they saw where he knew he needed to be and he didn't fit there in their world, they just threw him away, crucified him, set him aside. But that's what the Peter said in Acts 4. But God made him the head of the corner. So that's the cornerstone principle. And I know you've got it. But by our biblical convictions should be based on this word. Convictions should be based on the Bible. I should say it that way. They should be seen in our life. They should not change. And they should be consistent one with the other. You've heard me say this before maybe. But the Bible is not a rule book. But it is a road map. It is the owner's manual that God gave us for life. So why would you not want to consult the owner's manual when a light is flashing in your light, life that something is wrong and you can try to figure it out yourself and go tinker around like lots of men would be tempted to do. Why would you want to read the instructions? You'll figure it out eventually, right? But get the owner's manual and let God guide you to doing the right thing. When you disregard biblical principles, you set yourself up for shipwreck and heartache and this faulty structure that is not built on the cornerstone. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall never pass away. So that's first principle. 
I've taken a little longer on that because it really is the cornerstone principle. Secondly, your purpose. In making a decision, you should ask yourself if this decision, if I make this decision, how does that line up to my purpose in life? Now, if I was teaching this to middle schoolers or senior high students or even younger college students, and I know you're here tonight, many of you are, you may still be trying to figure that out. I was 18 years old on a missions trip to Korea. You've heard me refer to that. Trying to figure out what God wanted me to do with my life. I did not know that I had a call to preach. I thought I might, but I wasn't sure. And the last thing I wanted to do was to call myself to preach. Because the idea of doing what I'm doing now scared me out of my mind. I had no internal desire to get behind the pulpit and teach or preach. That was not something that I was this anxious to do. So I understand what it is like to try to know your purpose. So then you can say, does this line up to my purpose? And when, if I was teaching on the will of God to students, which I've done many times, and I shared a lesson with some people in our church recently on the will of God, sometimes the will of God is like a puzzle. You don't know what the entire picture is, but you know what to do first, right? You put the perimeter in and my wife's the puzzle master in our family. For me, just go buy the picture. Why would you buy a thousand pieces? Does it make any sense to me, you know? But she likes that thousand piece thing. I like the final product. But she's more patient with things like that than me. But sometimes you don't know what the final picture is going to be. So you just put the pieces in place that you know are right. And early on before you know the full picture of your life, and we don't know the full picture until we take our last breath, you do what you know based on your life purpose. In Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life, which years ago we taught an entire series on, and many of you bought the book, he said several things that I think he got this right, that we were planned for God's pleasure. So the first thing about our purpose is that we belong to God and we are designed for Him. And secondly, he wrote that we were formed for God's family. We have a place of fellowship in the body of Christ. We are created to become like Jesus Christ. So we should have a lifelong commitment to discipleship and being like Him. We were shaped for serving God. There is a place for every one of us in the body of Christ. If we're in the body, we have a function. And we were made for a mission. Amen. That's kind of this whole idea of your purpose. And we want to know our mission in life and try to make sure that our decisions are aligned to that mission. In our church, we, we teach this process called shape, your spiritual gifts, your heart, your abilities, your personality, and your experiences. We want to help people know their spiritual shape so that they can find their place in ministry. Sometimes we serve where we're needed. I don't feel a calling to take out trash or push down the trash that's overflowing in every waste can no matter where it is, a restaurant, a campground. It's my mission in life. But I do that because I care about that as a citizen and the person that's coming behind me. But I really don't feel a calling to that. Maybe I do, but I don't feel a calling to that. I, but I know it's a need, and I don't need the Lord to speak to me about picking up trash off the floor. I should walk in here on Monday, <clears throat> walk around on Sunday afternoon a little bit. That would be a gift all of us should pray for, picking up the stuff around us. I learned as a bag boy at the age of 16 to pick it up, not pass it up. You know, it's a little mantra. 
So anyway, well, I'm really off my notes, right? But my purpose in life determines how I spend my time and my talents and my treasure that we talk about a lot. I should really ask, does this decision fit God's plan for my life? And I mentioned this a while ago, but as an older teenager, when I started to feel God calling me to something, I didn't know what. I think first it was relationship and then ministry. There are some things that were not blatant sin, but I started to feel uncomfortable about. Like others can maybe do that, but that I can't do that. That doesn't fit me. And there are some decisions I made, and I'm not trying to sound holier than thou or self-righteous, but I look back on that. I have the perspective of history, right? After you get a little older and can look back and see what God was forming in me, the decision that was, my, had the, was affected by my purpose, I learned that God was calling me. Amen. There are some callings in life that require a higher degree of commitment. If you read the qualifications and the pastoral epistles for a deacon or a bishop that's higher than other people and John Maxwell wrote, you have to give up to go up. And if you think that you want to lead an organization, whoever leads it really has the fewest rights of anyone else. That's just part of leadership. So there may be things that are not sinful, but that shouldn't be your question. Does this fit into my life? Does this fit my purpose? Is this compatible with, I want to, with what I want to do? In my early ministry, my late 20s, I believe, if I remember right, um, a man who was a minister who was bivocational, he was a businessman and pretty well-to-do, had multiple businesses, and he, he felt like I maybe had some gifts of administration and management, and he came to me and he offered me an opportunity to work part-time for him and manage a particular business. I could do this, I'd drive right by it on my way home every day, and he gave me an amount of money that was pretty, a lot to me at that time, $20,000 in the 80s, part-time you know, thing that I could do supposedly in my sleep. And I prayed about that and I talked to my pastor, my boss. And it, it wasn't wrong, it wasn't bad, but it, for me, just for Daryl Johns, because I have some, some friends that are bivocational, that are tremendous business people, but that, that is just not who I am. And the Lord is not, just kind of guided me away from that. I know for me, that's not a sin for my friend, but for me, I'm not saying it would be a sin, but it doesn't match my purpose. How does this fit my purpose in life? Why would you want to spend your life in detours and distractions and defeat all because you didn't know your purpose and you made decisions that were not compatible with the, the purpose that God had called you to? One thing about your purpose, you know, when we're teaching on dating and marriage and relationships... We talk about this, this unequal yoke. And when you read about the unequal yoke in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, we typically think that that has to do with dating and marriage and the application is true there. But this really has to do with a broader application. That my life purpose affects who I yoke with, who I get in a contractual relationship with who I'm bound to in a way that I can't easily extricate myself. I can't get out of that relationship. That's a principle of my purpose in life. Third principle, priorities. Priorities. So, 
based on biblical principles and my life purpose, now I can kind of see what my priorities should be in life. Now for all of us, you could say, seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things, all the needs of life shall be added unto you. That's Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Not in my notes as a reference, but we understand that everybody could say that. That my priority is the cornerstone, is Jesus seeking Him first. But what is most important in my life? The first commandment tells us in Exodus 23, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. So if I need a priority, obviously my priority is God. The word priority is the fact or condition of being regarded or treated as more important. It's a thing that is regarded as more important than another. Something is superior and something is subordinated, right? So this is more important than that. It has a higher priority in my life. When I was here trying out my favorite, not really expression about, you know, being considered to become a pastor, 39 years old. Met our church board, and after I was elected, I spoke to our church, and I said, these are my priorities in life. And I'll have to say that you have to always press order into disorder. My walk with God, my marriage, our boys, and then this church. And I said that from the beginning. It's always difficult to keep that right, but I felt like it was right, and if I would do that right, that one relationship would serve the other. Like Proverbs 4.23 says, To keep thine heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. It's a wellspring of life. So if you get this right, your walk with God, then it now serves the next most important relationship. That's what a priority is. You know what is most important, and you know what is less important. That's what a priority really is. You set one thing above or below another. In time management and Managing tasks, you know, there's a lot of people that are much better at this than me, but way back in the day, my trusty day timer, you know, you can label those priorities starting 1, 2, 3, or A, B, C, or 1A if you want to get really fancy about it. But however you do that in your life, whether you're scheduling a day or a week or a year, or you're thinking about what's important to you in life, you should know what is most important to you and then what comes after that. What is negotiable for you and what is non-negotiable? For a church here, and when I teach leaders, it is non our doctrine, our message is non-negotiable. It is not for sale. Our mission is non-negotiable. It is not for sale. The color of the walls, that's negotiable. When we have church, that's negotiable. What we do when we come, that's non-negotiable. We're going to worship and preach the word. So if you don't know what is for sale, what's negotiable, and what is not, if you don't know your priorities, then you're making decisions by pressures. Peer pressure, financial pressure, time pressure, and not living an ordered life. Now, on any given day, on any given day, you're probably a lot better than me. But I can tell you, you I have to work really hard at practicing this and trying to make sure I get this right. Because there is no perfect day for me, and I doubt there is for you. So you try to think through. 
what needs to be done. When it needs to be done. When does this need to be done? And how does it need to be done? By whom should it be done? Is this something I should do? Or something that someone else is better at? Or has the margin to do that I don't? And then in what order should these things be done? I have this little memory of a day in Jackson, Mississippi when I had several errands to run. And this is, I, I've used a day timer, a physical day timer, and I use Evernote, and we use Basecamp, and we have Planning Center, all these tools that are really good and helpful. But I've used a physical day timer since I was a freshman in Bible, a senior in Bible college, so maybe 46 years or so. Every month, put that little insert in there, tear off those little tabs every day. Hopefully you have a week when you can tear them off and throw them away. You didn't write anything down. That's called a vacation. And I wrote an article several years ago about I just put a week in my pocket and guess what? Everybody's going to be fine and I'm better for it. So, And when you see my article for July, you'll laugh at me if you know me, but it's still true. The art of doing nothing. Anyway, our nature is to put off what we dread. And when we do, it usually creates more dread. It gets worse. Things that we put off often get abandoned. And the thing that we defer and delay, if it's a priority, there are consequences that may not show up immediately, but they show up down the road. Ultimately, when they show up, it's usually bigger and badder than it was in the beginning. So, for example, that oil change that you need to take care of in your car, deferred maintenance is always more expensive than doing routine maintenance. The leaky roof at your house or the foundation that has problems, those things if they're neglected, become much, much worse. And they seem to be a minor aggravation today, but tomorrow they can cause you lots and lots of trouble. And as a pastor, I'm not in the business of leaky roofs or oil changes. I care about that because I have a vehicle and a home, so it's just as important to me as it is to you, but I typically don't spend my time reminding you to change your oil. That's not really my role. But what really matters is relationships, right? And things that we should not postpone. We tend to make decisions based on pressures or priorities. Um, do you remember when Herodias' daughter came in and danced before Herod? And he foolishly asked her that he would give her anything she wanted to half the kingdom. Her mother's bidding, she asked for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the Bible said that he was exceedingly sorry, exceeding sorry. Yet for his oath's sake and for the sakes which sat with him, and they were eating with him. So peer pressure, peer pressure caused him to kill the man of God in his life. So if fear is driving us, we can make really bad decisions. There's a story about about priorities uh, in the book of Judges. In fact, this is how the book of Judges opens, and I'll try to make this a concise story. Elimelech and Naomi, they live in Bethlehem, Judah, Judges 1. And there is a famine in the land. It doesn't say that they prayed about it. It just says because of the pressure they were feeling from the famine that Elimelech, Naomi, their two boys, Malon and Chilion, they left Bethlehem, Judah, and they went down to Moab. Now, if you read the story, they got there 
And they probably stayed longer than they intended to be there. They sojourned there. In fact, they were there so long that their boys got married to Moabitess women, girls that were not in the church. And over time, Elimelech died, the husband. And then the two sons died. And Naomi is left alone in Moab with her two Moabitess daughters-in-law, who were not evil people. They were generally good, good girls. And so, of course, Naomi comes home with Ruth. Uh, Ruth, excuse me, Ruth comes home with Naomi. And the women of the city see her coming down the road and, and they start asking, is, it, is this Naomi? This is that woman who left here however many years ago, over 10 years we know, and her sons are now dead. And the Bible said that she said to them, call me not Naomi, but call me Mara or bitterness, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Ruth 1.21 on the screens. I went out full, and the Lord hath brought me home again empty. Why then call me Naomi, seeing the Lord hath testified against me, and the Almighty hath afflicted me? Naomi said, when I look back, the decision that we made to leave Bethlehem, Judah, in a tough time, was obviously not the right decision. And I thought I left in a famine, but in hindsight, in retrospect, we really went out full. We had family. We had fellowship. We were home. And somehow, I'm reading this into the story, God would have gotten him through the famine. But the pressure of the famine caused him to make a decision of judgment based on that priority. And they left where God ordained them. And there were serious consequences. Of course, by the mercies of God, the Lord allowed Ruth to marry Boaz. And their son is in the lineage of Jesus Christ, which is an amazing story. If your priorities are right, God will bless you. Whether it's His will for you to stay or go, He'll guide you. If we place finances over faith, you might take a job, even if it is not best for your family or your faith. You'd be driven by economics rather than principles. I've seen through my lifetime people relocate to places and the last thing they think about is the church. We have people that relocate. This is Atlanta. People will always come and go. But when they say, you know, there's a good church there and I have a job opportunity there and I feel like it's the right thing. And we pray, but putting God first in that decision, that priority makes a lot of difference. I pray and I hope and when people think about moving to Atlanta, they say, oh, Atlanta West, you don't want to go there. Well, there's other choices, right? God should be the first factor. Number four, priority number four, or principle number four, rather, principle, is prayer. Now, you're shocked that I would put this in this list, right? Prayer. It is hard to pray right and live wrong. You should make... Every decision, a matter of prayer. Maybe not what color you wore to church tonight, but decisions that you make should be matters of prayer held up to the Bible. Many poor decisions could have been averted if people would have taken them to the Lord in prayer. And we know that prayer is always subject to the Bible. I can feel something in prayer, but I have to reference it back to the Bible 
to make sure it matches the scripture and isn't just a crazy idea that I had while I was praying. The, the Bible guides my praying. We shouldn't pray amiss, as James wrote about, or faultily, for something we really want to do, and we force God's will into that, or we think we are. We should pray, pray like Jesus did. Matthew 26, 39. And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Not my will, but your will be done in another gospel. That is a hard prayer to pray when you really want to do something. If you don't want to do something, it's an easy prayer to pray. Oh, Lord, not my will, but your will. I didn't want to do that anyway. But if you didn't want to die, if you didn't want to become sin, you know, he that knew no sin became sin for us. I think that was in the cup, you know, of suffering. James wrote this in James 4. I'm reading the New Living Translation. Look, look here, you who say, today or tomorrow, we're going to a certain town. We're going to stay there a year. We will do business there and make a profit. How do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog. It is here a little while, then it is gone. What you ought to say is, if the Lord wants us to, we will live and do this or that. Otherwise, James said, you're boasting about your own pretentious plans and all such boasting is evil. Remember, it is a sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. I like the New Living Translation of that passage. So, we want to pray about it. If the Lord will, then we're going to do that. We should pray for wisdom in making decisions. James 1 and 5. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. That give it to all men liberally and upbraideth not. He doesn't rebuke you for asking and as shall be given him. Now this verse is not about the word of wisdom, a gift of the spirit. It is about a gift of wisdom, an acquired wisdom. When you read the book of Proverbs, wisdom should be sought after like gold or silver. You mine it out of the word of God. You mine it out of life through reading and prayer and observation and listening. Wisdom isn't just gifted to you. But James said if you'll ask God for wisdom, he'll give it to you and he'll help you. You can pray when you pray. Pray for patience. That's another entire point next Wednesday night, Lord willing. Final point for tonight. The peace of God. The peace of God is more than an emotion. Now, the Bible says that we have peace with God. And peace isn't just a tranquil feeling, feeling babbling brook and the birds are singing, you know. That's not what peace really is about in the Bible. Peace is the absence of war. Peace is reconciliation. And we have peace with God when we are saved. Amen? Peace with God. But I'm talking about the peace of God that God gives you. When you're making decisions, peace is one way God rules in your life to guide a decision. And when He rules, there is peace. I love this verse, Colossians 3.15. It is one of those life verses for me. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, 
and be ye thankful. Now the word rule here is really a fascinating word in the original language. If the judge makes a ruling, you get that idea, right? If the umpire makes a ruling, you understand that. Well, the Greek word for rule here is umpire. Someone who renders verdicts. Who says you're safe or you're out. Okay? That's the idea. It takes the connotation of, of control. That that umpire is in control of your life. And he has the right to say yes or no. He has the right to say stay or go. He has the right to say him or not him, her or not her, that job, that school, whatever that is. I'm not trying to be too specific here. But it means that Jesus Christ in our life, that the peace of God is that decisive factor, that he gives his okay. Now, peace can be a feeling and if it violates the word of God, remember, the word of God is supreme. It's above every emotion or feeling or Holy Ghost intuition that we think we have. But peace is like the arbiter, the factor that we give precedence. And when, when you're making a decision and there's a lot of turmoil, you don't feel good about it. The umpire of your life saying, nope. That's not right. That's not me. You know that gnawing feeling? Now I have to say that in our years of marriage, my wife, I believe, has a better sense of that, I'm going to call the gut feeling, that, that spiritual intuition that I might have four reasons and she has one feeling and it could be better than my reasons. But I've tried to cultivate spiritual sensitivity. Now when you're making a really big decision... There can be some anxiety, fear, you know. You can play out a hundred scenarios in your mind and what if this and what if that. I am blessed and cursed with a detailed mind. I ask too many questions. Many years ago, staff in Jackson were looking at trying to buy health insurance and I met with the guy, I asked all my questions. He met with David Reaver, my close friend who worked there, he said, do you have any questions? He said, I don't have any questions. Because I know he asked every possible question. Just sign me up. He said, that's what we should do. So that's, sometimes that's good and sometimes that's bad. Okay, I'm just going to say. And, and I also, I want to know every possible option. Well, you know you can do that forever. Eventually, you have to say, I have researched this widget long enough. Buy the widget. $5 or whatever that is, right? Some decisions are much more. You know, we just made a pretty major purchase and want to make a good decision. But here's what I know. Eventually, I have to pray through my questions and my options. I'm not talking about buying a widget right now. To know, God, where are you in this? And the Lord, through other ways, you know, when we moved from Jackson to St. Louis, we looked through... Many ways the Lord confirmed that when we were kind of resistant to that. When you were trying to decide on us in 1995, we were trying to decide on you. And that may, you may think that, that you were the prize, but this was my life and family. This is where we planned to put down our roots for years and years and years. So I didn't want to make a mistake. 
and you need the Holy Ghost to come to you in times like that and say yes. Before this church voted, I preached Thursday, Friday. We had a picnic on Saturday. Sunday I taught the Sunday school lesson. There was a break. 3 o'clock Sunday school, 4.15 worship and went out and came in. And when I walked in the back door, there was a back door right there then. When I walked in the back door and walked down that aisle, I felt something come over me. That you are to be the pastor here. And I knew, I didn't know what the vote would be because I can't control people's decisions. But I knew for me that I needed, I desperately needed to know. And in the next year, I really needed to know. The first year here, if you were here, I needed to know. But when you take your family to Atlanta to become the pastor there, if they, those precious people allow you an opportunity to become your pastor, whatever a vote is for a pastor, it's an opportunity to become the pastor. A pastor is a relationship. It is earned every day, and you don't quit earning it if you've been the pastor 27 years. If you think you do, you're a fool. So say that to every preacher that watches this, this later. The peace of God is not the only factor in making wise decisions, but it's a major factor. Principles, purpose, priorities, prayer, and the peace of God. If you're able, please stand. Next Wednesday, Lord willing, I'll teach on precedent, the perspective of counsel, the people that are affected and involved in that decision, patience, and then how do you process a bigger decision in life. For tonight, I want to leave you with what is kind of my life verse. I love doctrinal verses, but when it comes to the course of life, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not to thine own understanding. I've had the privilege of working around some of the most brilliant people you can imagine, geniuses. But I watch geniuses go into false doctrine because sometimes intellectualism is not a problem, but pride in intellect is. Just like pride in money, and pride in talent, it's the pride that goes before destruction and the haughty spirit before a fall. So when you, when you, have, when you think you're smart, you lean to your own understanding, you're really a fool. But you trust in the Lord with all your heart. It means to lean on Him and lean not to your own understanding. Verse 6. In all thy ways, in every facet of your life, every decision you make, acknowledge Him. Make Him part of that decision. Don't exclude God from the decisions that you're making. He's not a liability to you. He's not trying to confine you or hurt you. He's your greatest resource and your greatest asset. In all thy ways, acknowledge Him and He shall direct thy paths. Amen. If you have a few moments, you'd like to just come and let the Lord minister to you or you like to talk to the Lord about any of these principles of decision making 
These altars are open now. If you need to go, I know many of you have had a very long day. We're going to spend a little bit of time in prayer tonight before we go, asking the Lord to help us make wise decisions. Wise decisions based on principles, purpose, priorities, prayer, and the peace of God.